Open your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 11, coming back to this uh, amazing chapter, an amazing passage, dealing with the future of Israel. In the early days of the church were marked by God's amazing work in Israel. Some amazing things he did, particularly in Jerusalem in the early days after the apostles received the Holy Spirit, poured out on them, of course, through Peter's preaching, thousands of Jews immediately responded to the message of faith and repentance. And the book of Acts tells us that over the course of the next several years, it seems for the next decade, that God was continually adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. There was a continual growth that was taking place, and no doubt an excitement among the Jews for what God was doing among His people. In fact, it would seem that for the first decade of the church, this was really the the testimony. We're never told exact numbers, but we can assume that there were maybe tens of thousands, 10, uh, excuse me, 20, 30,000, something like that, uh, Jews who had repented and embraced Christ as Lord. And of course, as persecution came, they were scattered outside of Jerusalem into all of the areas of uh, the land of Canaan, we might say. They all throughout the Middle East, but in every area where there were Jews in that land, there were churches popping up, there were Jews who were believing. There was a real sense that this was going to have an impact. At that point, there had been no major missionary movements into the Gentile territories. And even where the church had uh, spread, it was still predominantly Jewish. There was a sense that God was finally doing the work that they had always prayed for, always hoped for. Finally bringing about faithfulness to Israel, even if it's a small and steady growth. But then things started to change after about a decade. God began to move among the Gentiles, began to bring them to the Lord. He sent out Paul and Barnabas and others and churches were being planted everywhere. And within the course of the next 10 or 12 years, it seems that the Gentiles overtook the Jews as the predominant race in the makeup of the church. The work among the Jews, it appeared, in fact, stalled out. God had done amazing things among them, but now the work really seemed to be exploding among the Gentiles. They were the ones who were turning the world upside down, and it left Jews confused. It left them confounded. There were major controversies about whether the Gentiles who were now coming into the church needed to become like Jews in order to enter the church. There were There was a major sense of grief, really, that God didn't appear to be finally fulfilling what their hopes and dreams were, even though it started out that way. It raised serious controversy, and because these Jews had grown up reading the Scripture and had always been taught that God's work was always primarily going to be Jewish, it would have a major revival that comes to Israel, and it would bring about a kingdom centered in Jerusalem, there was confusion. That's really part of the background behind what Paul is discussing in Romans 9 to 11. That is both the biblical and the cultural, historical background in the conundrum of the church. You can imagine if 
If you saw such a massive sea change in your own church over the last 10 years, you can imagine you would be asking, what's going on? I mean, what is God doing among the church and even among our nation? And so Paul's writing to the church at Rome where there were both Jews and Gentiles in the church who for different reasons had questions about the continuity of Israel, the continuity of the Jews, and particularly of the Jews as a nation. And Paul is answering it, we might say, at length in these three chapters. And particularly in chapter 11, he puts the issue in the simplest possible terms in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected His people? It's a question everyone was asking. Does this movement among the Gentiles, does this lack of movement among the Jews, does all of this mean that God has rejected His people, Israel? Paul, of course, answers it right there immediately. Absolutely not. And if you were here with us last week, you remember we looked at how Paul expanded that answer in the first six verses of the chapter, first of all, talking about his own personal experience, secondly, talking about the premise of God's foreknowledge over His people. Thirdly, talking about the parallels in Israel's past history before finally, in verse 6, emphasizing the principle that all of this is magnifying. That salvation is by grace and not by works. That when God does finally work among the Jews, He's going to do it in such a way that it is absolutely obvious that their works have failed them and that it is Absolutely necessary that grace be the catalyst, be the reason. And in verses, picking up in verse 7, going down to verse 12, Paul sort of moves from that expanded answer to a bit of a summary of how this plan is working itself out. And it is profound and it is rich. And it basically tracks in three movements, or we might say three developments in God's plan, not only for Israel's restoration, but also for their rejection. Three, three developments in God's plan, both for Israel's rejection and for their ultimate restoration. And he's demonstrating how God is bringing all of these things together, both their unbelief and their eventual belief. He's bringing all of these things together for His glorious purposes in His name. Let me just read this so that you can hear it in its entirety before we look at the details. He says in verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? 
There are three developments that Paul mentions here in God's plan, both for Israel's rejection and for, his, and for their restoration. The first one we see in verses 7 through 10, we might call it the divine plan behind their failure. The divine plan behind their failure. He begins with this sort of summary of everything that he said so far, where Israel is while he's writing. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. He's just restating what he's already said all along, is that within Israel there has been a true Israel. Within Israel there's always been a remnant. Within Israel there's always been an elect group of people, while the majority of them have been hardened. He says, Israel failed to obtain what they were seeking because if you remember back in chapter 9, he ended that chapter saying Israel had pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, but did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, by works. So this is already what Paul has told us, and he's really... This is the beginning of his expansion, if you will, into what's going on behind all this because he keeps, as we move through this chapter, digging deeper and deeper and deeper into their present rejection. Remember, we said this last week that Paul's basic message throughout this chapter is, first of all, that Israel's rejection is only partial, and then secondly, that it's only temporary. The position that Israel was in during Paul's days, it wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't the result of some reconsideration by God. It wasn't the, uh, the, the change of plan that some people might imagine that it was. It wasn't the result of God just finally losing patience with Israel. It wasn't a confusion in terms. It wasn't a, it wasn't a case of poor communication on God's part. His plans were clearly stated, and they stand. In fact, Paul wants us to understand that everything that was happening, both in Israel and in the church, is exactly what God has always said would happen, exactly the way He said it would happen. It's plain and obvious when you look in the Old Testament And we shouldn't set aside those passages that promises Israel's restoration any more than we should set aside those passages which predict their rejection. Or we might say we shouldn't pass over those those passages that promise restoration just as we shouldn't pass over those very same statements that talk about their rejection. Both of them have a place In God's plan, both of them were clear in the Scripture. And God is still working through both of them. If you want to summarize anything from the long, long history of Israel, all of their religious zeal, all of their works, you might summarize it as really bankruptcy. It has been one long testimony of the bankruptcy of human effort at salvation. If you want to ever really understand how futile it is for you to try to to work in a way that would make you acceptable to God, if you want to have a living illustration of how 
foolish it is to pursue God by trying to make yourself acceptable to Him by what you do. Look at Israel. You never saw a more religiously zealous people. You never saw a people who were more fastidious about trying to uh, uh, conform to the minor particulars in the law of God. You never saw people who were so devout and disciplined and, and, uh, and in some places uh, active in their service. And yet for all of it, God says, that's the wrong way to pursue me. I never wanted you to pursue me that way. I wanted you to pursue me by faith. By faith. Paul says, in fact, in spite of all of their religious zeal, in spite of all their religious works, they're spiritually dead. Their zeal, their efforts, wasn't uh, some sign that there was a spark of life within them. They are, as Paul says, hardened. They're hardened. You may not realize that could be the case. That someone can be religiously active, that someone can be biblically knowledgeable, that someone can read the scripture every week or maybe even every day, someone could uh, devote themselves to service in religion and and have some respectable uh, reputation and yet all the while be hardened in their heart against God. But that's exactly where Israel was. They were hardened. It's a profound reality of all of their devotion and all of their service. Is that really inside they were full of dead men's bones. This was Israel. Spiritually dead, spiritually hardened. But there was an elect group. A group that we've already seen. One called the remnant. A select group within Israel that Paul says did obtain a relationship with God. They didn't obtain it by what they did. They obtained it because God chose them. And because God chose them and they responded to God by faith because of that, they had a relationship with God. It's not that they were irreligious. It's not that they didn't love the Word of God. But that they understood that none of that stuff was the basis of their relationship with Him. The basis of their relationship with Him was His mercy. And they had faith in that mercy that they would be saved. This is where Israel was in Paul's day. This still is where Israel is in our own day. Largely dead spiritually, largely hardened spiritually, insensitive to the things of God. But Paul doesn't leave it just at that. He doesn't want us just simply to walk away with an observation of this dynamic within Israel. He wants us to know where it came from. He wants us to understand why it is this way. And he wants us to see that this isn't some massive miscalculation on the part of God. This isn't some uh, uh, failure to communicate on the part of God. He wants us to know that just as surely as God promised all of His blessings to Israel, so too God predicted this hardness. He knew this would be the case. And what Paul does in verses 8 through 10 is basically links together three verses, one from the law, 
one from the prophets and one from the writings, giving us a threefold witness, we might say, from the entirety of the Old Testament to show that this was everything that the Old Testament said, and not just in some obscure place. In verses 8 and 9, he brings together a passage from Moses pronouncing Israel's spiritual blindness and a passage from Isaiah predicting this spiritual blindness. And he demonstrates that God was not only identifying, God was establishing a pattern. Going all the way back to Moses, all the way to the very beginning, uh, all the way to when God established His covenant through Moses with them, all the way to when He gave them the law, going all the way back there, and then by quoting Isaiah, showing that this came all the way up to the exile. And it's actually repeated numerous times in between. In fact, it's repeated even in the New Testament. One of the, uh, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament is a prediction of Israel's blindness out of Isaiah chapter 6. Israel was hardened. They were hardened when God originally called them and they would remain hardened. In fact, Paul makes clear that this hardening was a work of God. God, you'll notice, God gave them, verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear down to this very day. In fact, Paul only quotes part of Deuteronomy 29 there, but the full verse says this. You have seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all of his servants and to all of his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. So in other words, God had done this great work bringing Israel out of Egypt. But what he had not done and what he said he had not done at that point was to give them eyes to see. Give them ears to hear. This was, in other words, this was the work of God. The plan of God. The intention of God. Paul wants us to know then that Israel's current state is in no way reflective. That anything said in the Old Testament has changed. In fact, he he takes those verses and he adds in verses 9 and 10... Some others which have the same theme, it is the theme of eyes being darkened so that they cannot see. It's actually out of Psalm 69, a lament of David, of those who betrayed him. And it was one of the psalms that the early church identified early as a messianic psalm. They, they saw it as a prophecy of the suffering of Christ rejected by his own people. And so for Paul... These are words that may very well, it's a prayer, but they're words that may very well have been on the lips of God. Let their table become a snare. That is their place of nourishment and comfort. Our table is normally the place where we go to relax and enjoy and and feel a sense of of community, maybe even safety. He says, let it become a, a trap 
a stumbling block, a retribution for them. And let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever, probably groping around in their blindness because they can't see. Bent over in that position. So again, here's another voice of testimony of divine punishment through blindness, judicial blindness. God had hardened their hearts because they didn't have hearts that could believe to begin with. God had blinded their eyes because He never gave them eyes to see to begin with. This is judicial hardening, judicial blindness, as we saw back in chapter 9. So the issue is clear. Israel never had the eyes to see, never had the ears to hear from the very get-go. God never gave it to them, of course, because they never asked God to give them eyes. They never asked God to give them ears. They never believed that they actually needed it. Or maybe, I should say, they assumed that they already had it. And you get to Isaiah, and God says He's going to give them a spirit of stupor. Then you understand they were already stumbling on their own. When He says in another passage in Isaiah 6 that He'll blind their eyes so that they cannot see, we understand they were already blinded. God never gave them eyes to see in the first place. That's His judicial judgment over them. God is hardening. They're already hardened hearts. Or we might say it this way, God is cursing them with a hardened heart by not giving them a soft one. Or God is cursing them with blinded eyes by not giving them eyes to see. Just as we said back in Romans 9.18. And Paul's showing how this is working out. Whereas 9.18 might have been speaking about individuals. Paul is really showing how this is working out in Israel as a whole. Just as he had raised up Pharaoh, for his particular purposes, to show his glory and to make the riches of his wisdom known, he's doing the same with hardened Israel. It's part of his divine plan. The rejection by Israel was a part of his plan. And because the rejection is a part of his plan, it actually becomes a proof a part of the proof that it's only temporary. That God, because He's sovereign even over their rejection, He is able, because He's sovereign over it, to grant them the eyes to see and the ears to hear. If their rejection was something that happened outside of His control, then it wasn't anything He could do anything about. But because we accept the electing work of God, because we understand what Scripture says about God's foreknowledge and His election over those that He saves, because we understand His judicial hardening, we understand that that doctrine of election prepares the way for a future restoration because of God's sovereignty. In fact, as Paul says this down in verse 23, that if God has broken them off, He has every power to be able to graft them back in. But before that can happen, Paul takes us to the second development 
in God's plan for both Israel's rejection and for the restoration. The second development in this passage is the divine plan for their present falling. The divine plan for their present falling. He's, he's kind of taken us to the historical part, showed us those passages of Scripture that already talked about this, and then he restates the issue in verse 11. So I ask... Did they stumble in order that they might fall? The answer is supposed to be obvious to you by now. By no means. Just in case you draw the wrong inference from what I just said, just in case that you imagine that this is all permanent, Paul restates the question to say that this broad hardness of heart on the part of Israel was was a part of God's purpose all along. And his purpose was not for Israel ultimately to fall. There was another purpose. There was another unfolding process. This rejection is not permanent. Instead, it is the occasion for God, first of all, bringing in a great many Gentiles. Rather than being their ultimate fall, Paul says, through their trespass. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Jesus came to his own, his own received him not. And so God brought a flood of Gentiles to the way of righteousness, to a relationship with God. Doug Moose says, because Israel rejected the blessings that were were hers by promise, it's caused them to be diverted into another wider channel in which they're now flowing to the world. But this is not the end of the story, end quote. We were visiting with some friends, Tara and I, recently, and they were taking us out back of their house and showing us their creek. And um, it occurred to us, wow, that you have a really full creek here. That's nice, especially in the middle of this drought. And he's like, oh, no, it's the beaver who moved in downstream. And he said, people try to get rid of beavers all the time. They, they feel like there's some sort of uh, you know, pest that you have to eradicate. But they do so much good, and they started to explain to us how beavers not only you know, serve their own needs, but they're really good for all of the animal, wildlife, uh, upriver, upstream that, that dwell along the banks, not to mention the vegetation and allowing saturation in the ground where it needs to be. So many people don't even think about those, those attendant benefits. They just immediately call the animal control and remove the beaver and they miss all the benefits. Well, Paul wants us to know that if... If the flow of blessings to Israel have been stopped up, then there is an overflowing, there's a flooding of those blessings that are now running out into the fields, we might say, of the Gentiles. God has brought about this, this hardening on the part of Israel, but it's, it's accomplishing another purpose. It's bringing about blessing to the nations. But even that blessing is not the ultimate end because Paul says there's more to the plan because all of this is ultimately, you'll notice at the end, to make Israel jealous. That is a purpose clause in the the Greek language. This was God's purpose behind all of this. This wasn't just some sort of haphazard circumstance. Even Israel's present hardness is working out God's plan. Now, there's good reason why Paul would say this, not just because he's an optimist for the future, but because this is exactly what the Old Testament said, exactly what it said. 
Remember, Paul is emphasizing that not only were the promises of restoration given in the Old Testament, but they stood right alongside all of the statements of Israel's rejection. And Paul's saying that with these statements of rejection, there, were, there was this anticipation of jealousy. That's part of God's plan. Deuteronomy 32. Paul already quoted it back in chapter 10, verse 19. But it declares, They have made me jealous with what is no God, that is to say their idolatry. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So, I will make them jealous with those who are no people. And I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. See, there's no change. It really shouldn't be a mystery. Because this is all working out. Even the hardness of Israel at the present time is working out exactly the way that God said it would work out. Exactly the way He had predicted it. From the very beginning with Moses. God had already declared the plan. This whole plan was to to, to use the hardness of Israel to bring the Gentiles in, but not just that, but to use the bringing in of the Gentiles to stir Israel to jealousy from there. The influx was never meant to demonstrate that God had abandoned Israel, that they had fallen out of His plan, that somehow He had set aside His promises, not by any means. In the paradox of God's wisdom... Israel's rejection of Christ is actually the starting point of God's plan, His process of leading Israel back to the place of blessing. We're not told when that will be. We're not told what makes them wake up to the blessings that are in the church. Paul presents the picture that right now they're still in this place of hardness. They're still in this place, we might say, unprovoked. In jealousy, but there's something that will take place in the future that will stir them to jealousy and they will return. Which brings us to the third development in God's plan for both Israel's rejection and also for their restoration in verse 12 when Paul asked the question in verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And this is God's divine plan for their fullness. When the time comes. And there's no doubt who Paul is talking about here. He's talking about current unbelieving Israel. The same ones back in verse 7 who were hardened. He speaks here using the third person plural pronoun three times in this verse. Their trespass. Their failure. And then finally, their full inclusion. If God's design is ultimately that Israel's rejection bring riches to the world, not material riches we're talking about, but spiritual riches, riches to the Gentiles, riches to the world, those riches then provoke Israel to jealousy. And ultimately, Israel's failure is the key to the restoration. God's ultimate purpose was not to cast them off. It was to make them see their sin more deeply. To make them see how they had spurned God more deeply. To make them see the futility in their works. To magnify His grace and to denigrate their self-righteousness. To have a visible demonstration 
in the midst of the misery of their sin, of a blessed people of God in front of them and to provoke them to jealousy. In the meantime, God has been flooding the Gentiles with grace. He's been enriching the church. He's been saving souls. He's been bringing about spiritual blessing to the peoples. There's a remnant of Jews even among us now, even in the church. God is still working in them in that way, in the elect remnant that is there. But the majority of blessings are coming to the Gentiles in our lives, in our hearts, in our homes. God is working gloriously and we give testimony to it. And all of this, although the majority of Israel, as it still is today, is hardened. But it won't always be that way. And Paul challenges us to consider, if we get these kinds of blessings while Israel is hardened in unbelief, think about what it will be like when they're restored. Or, or when they're full, as Paul says there. Some people have suggested that he's talking about uh, completeness in the sense that this is just some long cumulative process, uh, just an accumulation of Jews over time, that small remnant of Jews who are in the church accumulating until the process is complete. But that doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up to the contrast in the passage. It doesn't hold up to the use of the third person pro- pro- pronouns in the verse. Uh, he's speaking about their trespass, their failure, their fullness. He's speaking about a day when God will finally work among the Jews. When the largely unbelieving Hebrew people are filled with faith. And it won't just be a small remnant of Jews who believe like now. It'll be a full rank. A much greater number than the church has ever seen. The result of that, Paul says, is even greater blessings to the Gentiles. It's not as if God has turned His back on us. It's not as if God's going to do away with the Gentiles when all this takes place. It's not as if He's going to shift again in another direction. What He's saying is that the restoration of the Jews is going to bring worldwide blessing. He's anticipating, of course, what we call the Millennial Kingdom. It's spoken about throughout Scripture takes place whenever Christ returns. When He reigns on the earth and the Scripture says righteousness will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And there's so many places that you can read about in this, but one really succinct place in Isaiah chapter 2 speaks about this great blessing when the Jews are restored. Isaiah 2 and verse 2, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days. That the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and it will be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he'll judge between the nations and he'll decide disputes among the many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. 
It's a glorious day. You think your life's blessed right now. It's nothing compared to what the Lord's going to do when He finally fulfills His plan. When He finally lifts the stupor off of Israel. When He finally brings them in. You'll enjoy those blessings, but only if you know a taste of them now. That is to say, only if you have eyes to see. If you're not one of those who have put on that same self-righteous show that Israel's had. Putting on a show to please your parents or your spouse or your friends. But inside you're full of dead men's bones. You don't know the blessing of God. Listen, He has blessing. Untold blessing that come to you not because of what you do, but because of His grace. And it's just a foretaste even now. What you see in the family around you, what you see in the believers all around you, it's real. And it'll be even more manifest in the kingdom. To have that, the scripture says, you have to respond to God's call by faith. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Paul says. That if you don't have eyes to see all this stuff, if you don't have ears to hear God's voice, that if you cry out and ask Him, He'll answer. And He'll make you a part of His family. And He'll prepare a place for you in His kingdom. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. Lord, we're so grateful for Your wisdom in a way that included us, a people who were far off, a people who were not a people, strangers and aliens to your covenants of promise with Israel, but you've brought us near. You've already made your two peoples into one. Even here among us, we have sweet fellowship with those elect Jews who worship together with us. Lord, Lord, how much more when your final and full restoration takes place and your name is magnified. For you are the one who declares it from the beginning and it is so. Who sends forth your word and it does not return to you void. Lord, we pray that your full work, not only among Israel, but among the Gentiles would bring you so much glory that you would continue to save those that we preach the gospel to and that righteousness would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.